1: Welcome to our show. I'm Jacob Michael, a graduate assistant here at the Gordy Institute. Here with me, as usual, are our hosts, Dr. Levi Russell and Russ McCullough, and also the newest addition to our team here, our undergraduate scholar, Jacob Cottle.
0: All right, and so Jacob is newbie to Ottawa, and so welcome, Jacob. Um, Where are you from? Kansas. Topeka, Kansas. And so Jacob earned the esteemed privilege of having a nice big scholarship to be a member of the Gortney Institute and he's our boots on the ground guy as we do different activities and helping out with things. So um, it's great to have him on and we'll have him on from time to time on these uh, podcasts too. So speaking of podcasts, oh and I was gonna say I got my PhD as well so that's Doctor <laughs> Russ McCullough. Did exactly. I say that? Since you were worried about the intro, so I, I thought I, 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 thought I criticized it. you publicly. While I just want to make head. sure I got your last <laughs> name right. <so. laughs> yeah, you did that. One, thing, one thing at a time.
1: Yeah. One thing yeah. at a time. <laughs> one little, little baby steps. Yeah, by the end of my graduate assistantship, I'll have this perfect. All right,
0: yeah. Levi. Why don't you tell us what our job
2: yeah. so, is? Here. So I thought today it would be good to talk about cooperatives and specifically cooperatives that are owned by the people who are their customers as well. And so a lot of times when we talk about co-ops, we think of employee-owned co-ops and that's a different type of cooperative. But what's interesting about the U.S. is that during the progressive era in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a lot of legislation to try to bust the trusts and keep large businesses from taking over uh, markets and all this sort of thing, at least that was the rhetoric. And one of the exceptions for that was cooperatives, and there was actually a, I believe, a senator from Kansas who um, was a key part of legislation uh, that allowed farmers to essentially collude together in a in the form of a co-op and work together to try to either push up the price of the products they sell or reduce the price of the inputs that they buy using market power that they gained from cooperating together and owning this other firm that was effectively owned by all of their individual farms. And so it's kind of an interesting case where there's a legal, there's a sort of legal precedence that they got an exception for. And it, I think from a business perspective, it, it leads into all kinds of interesting governance type issues. And there's a lot of finance type issues as well, because when your customer is also the owner, it's a little, it's a little different than a normal corporation.
0: Yeah. I can speak to a couple other varieties of this. One, my business partner and I were the first real estate developer owners of apartment buildings to put their building, a couple buildings in as a cooperative. So it was frankly a a bit of a loophole, legal loophole by the way, but they... In Iowa... Yeah, you're not outing
2: yourself as a criminal.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to clarify that. So in Iowa, if you had a larger than a three-unit building, um, you were taxed at the full rate. You didn't get what's called a residential rollback, which is about 50% off of your taxes roughly then. And so in New York, you maybe have heard of old apartment buildings where people, instead of having condos, they they were part of a cooperative or whatever. Well, there it was because of circumstances with living. We really didn't have any reason to do that in Iowa or other places because we had a condominium laws. Mm-hmm. Well, our old buildings, in order to convert them to condominiums, which would then qualify for that as well, were just too old and it was cost prohibitive. The mm-hmm. sprinkler system, elevators, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the new code was, you couldn't do it. But if we <laughs> classified it as a cooperative, then we could so here's the thing it was on it was in front of the legislature that they might start allowing apartments to be considered with the residential rollback because you've got apartment owners renters and it's like they're paying that of course we've learned in econ class that the tax is both shared between the landlord and the tenant and so really in a sense the tenants were having this extra burden because they weren't getting the benefit of what smaller residences would get so that was kind of the argument so my business partner and I had to roll the dice. It was about $7,000 worth of legal fees, and we only stood to gain about 3000 per year. Mm-hmm. So basically, if the law changed within a two-year period, we, we weren't going to see the benefits yeah. of it. We did roll the dice. We did it, and they never changed the law, so we benefited from it quite wow. a bit. Yeah. And then a lot of other people followed suit, but we were the first ones in the state of Iowa to create a cooperative where, again, it's meant to be a bunch of people owning their own cube of space in an apartment building, right. but we were landlords, and we had to rent it from ourselves. There was this weird legal structure we had to do yeah. to make it pass mustard legally as a cooperative in the state of Iowa. And then my other short cooperative story is just peanut butter. So I told you uh, <laughs> my mom was a member of a co-op, and I didn't really understand why she just said. I'm going to go to the co-op to get food, and it was is always this... Yeah, homemade granola food that she'd come back with this peanut butter that always separated right away, and it was like not salted well. I hated it, and so, <laughs> so I've got bad bad, experience I've got a co-op. bad taste in my mouth. No pun intended from <laughs> the idea of peanut butter from the
2: co-op. So well, I think so from just from a, an economic angle, I think what's interesting about co-ops is is it's a way for a a business to get at economies of scale without using a corporate type structure. And so normally we think, you know, the normal business, you know, you start out small and you become successful and then maybe what you want to do is file your business as a corporation and then potentially do an initial public offering and, um, you know, get listed on a stock exchange. So then it becomes a public corporation and it's really easy to, or it's easier at least to raise capital through those markets to, uh, you know, make your business larger. And what a co-op does is it basically allows you to do some of those similar types of things and and combined with a whole bunch of tax advantages. So uh, one of my dissertation articles was looking at the tax advantages that co-ops receive. And so if, you know, other companies that provide some of the same services that co-ops do, if if the co-ops were taxed at the same rate as those corporations, then they would be underwater there's a lot of advantages just kind of from you know. from a policy
0: standpoint, like they didn't really intend to help me as the real estate landlord owner. Yes. The whole idea was to help the tenants. Right. Right. But that's always a hard nut to crack when you try to explain, no, I'm
1: really here to help my tenants, you know, wolves in sheep clothing or something. So,
0: um, so you mentioned a fancy word economy is a scale and I can't help but go to my young undergraduate scholar who maybe this is going to be the test of the day. Maybe learned what that was this morning. <laughs> He's looking uh, frantically for his notes. Now, I'm just putting you on the spot for fun. But, um, okay. So as we increase the size, the scale of production, what's happening to costs? How about old Jacob? Costs uh, go scale up production, costs go down. Costs go down on average. So average costs mm. fall. So um, that's the idea. <laughs> and so maybe people collectively working together is kind of our topic today can... Mm-hmm take advantage of what normally is like big Walmart or somebody else that can take advantage of these economies of scale.
2: Yeah. And so actually in the U S some really large businesses that you might not really know are co-ops are. Uh, So for instance, if you've never been in ACE hardware, that is a co-op. Really? What it is, is it's a bunch of small like mom and pop businesses that all own, uh, it's an in it's, it's called an input co-op. So they all come together and buy massive quantities of hammers or whatever oh. from the manufacturers, and so then by you know your your one little store in Ottawa Kansas wouldn't be able to get very much of a discount, right? You're not buying a large quantity, but when a whole bunch of stores all co- all come together and buy, then you get. Huh. A cost advantage, and that and that's part of the deal too. Is it's not just economies of scale; it's also discounts and yeah. stuff like this for large orders because of economies of scale. I guess, but but if you've ever been to a a Synex gas station, uh, we have them around here. Uh, just look for it; you'll see like an N, and it'll say Cinex or it'll say CHS. Well, CHS stands for Synex Harvest States, and CHS is a massive co-op in the U.S. that is actually a group of. It's actually made up of cooperatives. So there's individual farmers that have co-ops, and then those co-ops all own shares of CHS. And CHS does a lot more with oil and stuff like that. That's why they have the gas stations. So
0: Levi, how is (coughs) that different from Acts 432, where we have people pooling stuff together? So Acts 42, they're going to all share all the believers were one heart and mind. No one claimed any other possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then dot, 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 uh, from time to time, those who own land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to anyone in need. I mean, is that the co-op model or is that communism and like, uh, what, what's <laughs> yeah. going on there? What do you think?
2: No, I, I actually, that's one of the reasons why I really like co-ops is that I think it does fit, you know, you could, you could tell that story as maybe that's, you know, Leninist, you know, communism, but I think it also would fit the co-op model. And I think it fits it a lot better because it respects the individuals or or the organizations who make up that organization a lot better than, you know, a very large entity like a communist government It tends to be concerned about the small unit, but a co-op has to be because they have the property rights protections of, you know, a board of directors that they elect and they actually have equity in the company that they control. Um, and so to some extent they can disinvest in the company if they want to. Yeah.
0: So our capitalist argument that we made in other podcasts is that, and other theologians and others share this, is that uh, that was a certain time and place of need and the circumstances were such that that worked for them, but it wasn't meant to be any sort of policy prescription ongoing. Furthermore, they really used the market. That line that I just said from, From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Well, they had to participate in a market to do that. So clearly, there was these other voluntary actions going on in the market price, and they were a collection of people that were choosing to behave that way for a short period of time. And it also
2: doesn't say everyone was forced to sell all their land. That's right. Not everybody
0: (laughs) chipped in the pot. And so, I mean, that correlation probably stops at, with a real cooperative, if if you did sell your house and put more money in, you'd be entitled to more benefits from whatever the co-op is making typically or whatever the objective is. Right? Sure. I mean, it's not like, it's different than charity is what I'm trying to say. It's usually a more of a business function of some sort. And so you'd have more credit or more something of the output for the co-op.
2: Yeah. So the the general idea behind a co-op, just to give a really basic example of something you could see just driving around a rural area anywhere in the U S would be a, a grain cooperative, so it would be the case that the farmers themselves can't uh, necessarily justify having these massive grain bins that ho- that hold large, very, very large quantities of grain, right? And here in Ottawa, it's great because right in the middle of town we have you know these massive grain elevators that everybody can see, um, and so you know individual farmers can't afford that kind of thing, and so it's classic economies of scale, and so they all come together and pool their own equity. And build these, you know, huge grain elevators that allow them to market effectively. So it gives them options to sell their grain when they need to, uh, when the market's right for it, instead of just having to sell it at harvest when prices are always really low. So, All right. yeah, I think I think that, that that's kind of a perfect
0: lead-in. I think uh, well, good spot to cut for our first half, and after break, we'll come back and. Grandpa Jacob, we call him now, now that we got two Jacobs, but uh, (laughs) Jacob Michael has some thoughts on some stuff he's read with uh, farmers and maybe co-opting how that would look in that regard. So we'll see you in 30 seconds.
1: please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps others find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org.
0: If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time
2: or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org.
1: Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PovertySucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research.
0: Okay, so we're going to continue on with this co-op thing. We've got uh, some biblical uh, overtones going maybe with uh, love thy neighbor and maybe part of loving them is joining a co-op with them or something uh, because you can better better society that way for, for whatever reason. So that might work out well. We've talked about a number of different types. And Jacob, you had something with
1: farming or something? Yeah, so I just read a book not too long ago called small is still beautiful. And the author's last name is Pierce. The, the first name is escaping my head, but Joseph, Joseph Pierce. And so he he makes a lot of interesting arguments about how co-ops can achieve economies of scale and do it better than, I guess, larger corporations. And he talks a lot about pesticides and GMOs as good examples, because he says like a lot of these larger companies will pump the soil with all these pesticides or, put all these GMOs to increase production to try to um, have a larger harvest with the same amount of soil, but it's actually damaging to the soil. Whereas co-ops and farmers have incentives to try to keep their soil more, more healthy for later crops later on. And then he gives this really, really good example of the Mondragon corporation, which was founded by a priest in Spain. And I think it's one of the strongest signs of solidarity in business because all of these little things that they do is actually pretty interesting. Like what, one of the things that really stuck with me is they have a, um, a five to one pay ratio. So the the highest person in the corporation can't get paid more than five times than the minimum wage. Oh. So if they want to, if they the lowest, want raise, lowest wage, yeah, then whatever, the lowest yeah. wage, yeah. So if they want to raise, they have to give the they have to raise the minimum wage within the corporation. So it kind of keeps everyone, I guess, on a more of a level playing field.
2: Yeah, and, and Mondragon is not a small. Not a small co-op. Nice, yeah. yeah, no, no. I mean, I just, just to emphasize that, you know, a lot of times, you know, like you said, you know, people think of the co-op, right? It's mm-hmm. just this, you know, the store down the street, you know, and kind of in a rural town or whatever. They're small by, you know, our normal standards these days. But yeah, I think Mondragon's, their revenue is in the, the tens of billions. Yeah. So uh, I think it's like 11 billion something. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, very large company. And
1: between all the co-ops, I think they have 17,000 something workers.
0: Right. Well, and I I think the subsistence farming in India and other places, I've heard that pointed to as the way for them to go. We tend to romanticize the idea of, oh, I just have my little one acre, two acre plot Mm -hmm. and what I grow is what I eat and I take a little bit of surplus to the market. Well, most of those people aren't thinking too romantically when they're sweeping their dirt floor and, and struggling to get fresh water there. So, it's a lack of institutions of being able to maybe act collectively. And so if some of these ideas were brought forth, small-scale farming, in theory, one person said should be dead. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have, a short of it being a hobby, of course, but I'm, I'm talking in terms of commercially doing it for a country, everybody should be large-scale with the type of technology and equipment that we have. I mean, it is just insane. Uh, I was talking to somebody about the pesticides and that, they will custom mix the pesticide for your particular piece of land. So if you're in western Kansas, your pesticide mix might be slightly different than somebody that's 100 miles away. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, as the thing's going with GPS on your ground, it will spray some stuff and not others in certain
2: areas if it's needed. Yeah, precision agriculture is... is,
0: Precision is just unbelievable. And we're getting to
2: the point, too, where a lot of the problems we have is you know, you can't spray certain things if the wind's too high or if it's not high enough, mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And we're getting to the point where the seeds are going to be planted with like a little pod next to them that has everything that that seed needs to get to a certain point in its development. <laughs> and so like, you don't even gonna have to spray a lot of the stuff anyway. Oh, um, really? It's yes. all localized. Yeah, pilot. it's just in that little that little thing <laughs> has all the stuff concentrated in it that it needs. And of course, so it's like, like, like it's pesticides. own a small apartment. Like yeah, a, exactly. a seed, a little home. Here's your home. Like a little, inc- like a little <laughs> tent. incubator. Yeah. yeah, right. Well,
1: and, and another thing on the pesticide that Pierce talks about is kind of the externalities that we ignore because he gives the example of when they're dumping these pesticides over, historically, like it, it's decimated ecosystems and like, particularly birds, like it damages their eggs, but it's mm-hmm. largely ignored because we just focus on the output of the farm.
0: Okay. And so externalities for the listeners again, I don't want to get too jargony. So these are uh, negative, if it's a negative externality anyway, a a cost that's incurred by some third party that wasn't directly related to the transaction. So the farmer buying the pesticide from the market, they exchange money, but then when you put the pesticide on and it blows down to your neighbor and your neighbor gets negatively affected, that's what we mean by an externality, and that is a, a type of... Uh, situation where the market's not going to provide the optimal level of
1: the good if there's externalities involved.
2: Well, and I think I think I want to get back to what you were talking about, Russ, with these these other countries where there's a lot of subsistence agriculture and stuff. Um, I was actually talking with an old friend uh, yesterday who is a professor at a, a seminary in L.A. and she. She was talking about, you know, we were talking about international trade, and we were talking about Poverty, Inc., the documentary that we showed uh, last fall here on campus, and a lot of, you know, Poverty, Inc. was interesting. was talking about access to markets, um, stuff like this for these countries. One of the thoughts I had while I was talking with her is that, you know, a lot of times it's not necessarily about access to those markets. Uh, In a lot of these countries, it's institutions that, in the country itself, so if you solve the institutional problems that they have, I mean, name me a country where people are just abjectly poor and the government is, you know, all very up on the up and up and, you know, everything like this just doesn't happen. So, and I think co-ops are kind of an interesting way to get around some of the corruption that countries have because they have, you know, the big corporation, you always say, you know, government and big business playing kissy face kind of thing. These countries have this problem big time. And, and so a way for them to get to economies of scale that they need to improve their material condition while avoiding this problem of, corrupt politicians and, and, and people high up in large corporations is to do this sort of co-op type model. So And,
0: and the technology that's come along with blockchain, which we haven't had too many, pod, we probably need to do a podcast on yeah. Bitcoin or blockchain, but so b- blockchain technology, I could see really complementing the smaller co-op model because the legal structure can be memorialized in the blockchain independent of any government. I'm thinking right. third world countries, mm-hmm. cooperatives and all this stuff is pretty well developed in the United States. these are just things that we take for granted. Right. Uh, however, we blockchain will allow you to cut out the middleman of the government needs a $100 filing fee for this. Yep. All of those contracts and documentation can be memorialized on the blockchain and it can allow larger and larger co-ops to potentially form. I mean, it's one thing to have a a deal with your buddy and three other farmers or whatever. But if you start getting into 30 farmers or 40, you're, you're all of a sudden trying to organize a lot. And the blockchain technology could be huge with that uh, organization.
1: never thought of blockchain being used to store contracts and stuff. Oh,
0: that's one of the larger <laughs>
1: aspects of it actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I, I was thinking about this potential of being like a, a safe store of value for third world countries, but never, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Well, there's certainly
2: like the current, the currency thing is, is also is important, part
0: but, of that, but you know. it's different. Yeah. So, so the t- typical real estate transaction you keep in an abstract that gets memorialized at the county courthouse so that it shows Levi purchased his house from this person and they had a clear chain of title. They had the right to do that. The blockchain just basically keeps track of all the title property rights. And so, you know, really, we just go down to the car level right now with the government. So it's pretty much as far as real property goes. Uh, even boats, I don't think, have yeah a, a title, at least mm-hmm. in the state of Kansas. They might in other states. But yeah. uh, my point is, with blockchain, you can do it with anything. You can keep track. I mean, there's just an infinite yeah. number of ways that you can keep track of contracts. Yeah, we should, and we should have somebody
2: talk, I agents. think, about agricultural things, too, because there's a lot of issues with, like, you know, we talk about, People, you know, they want to know where their food comes from kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know, they want to know. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Where, Blockchain's where, huge for that, too. Yeah. So I have my hamburger that I bought, but what? where was that cow, and how old was it, and blah, 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 and where did it go from, And And so you can use blockchain to track that animal across. Yeah, space,
1: it's so. crazy. Yep, the Pierce would probably be on board with that, too, because he says a lot of the times you're eating GMOs and chemicals that you don't even know are in it. and It's hard to even find that out.
0: Yeah. So the blockchain, when I went to India, I went to a manufacturing plant, and they were using... I believe it was blockchain or at least computers. I can't remember for sure if it was blockchain per se. Yeah. But
2: could be RFID but tagging. R- and R- yeah. Yeah.
0: Every little component to the gizmo that they were making, which was an intermediate part for something else, if that thing broke three years from now, they can track it back to the factory, the time, the input supplier, the piece mm-hmm. that broke on mm-hmm. the 50-piece gizmo that they were making. I mean, it was unbelievable, the yeah. data. And every... Of the million parts they produced, all million of them had right. that stamped into right. it. Basically. Whereas the old school way
2: is, is having lot numbers where you have like this this palette of all the things we made are all the same number. You yeah. know? We can't distinguish between you know all the different ones on that one palette. But and this one even says that
0: George assembled it that yeah, day right. is the one who put it together. Because <laughs> this helped uh, with employee theft and employee uh, you know, sabotage uh, or whatever. Right. I mean, everything, the whole process is all mapped into it. It's, it was pretty crazy. So actually, I wanted to bring up, since uh, we have a little bit of thing, how, what do you think about unionization versus co-ops? Totally kind of different, but a different form of collective action. The reason I bring it up is that uh, maybe it'll be resolved by the time this podcast airs, but uh, UAW and General Motors are kind of fighting with each other. About 50,000 people are uh, off of the uh, production lines for General mm, Motors. Yeah. And fighting. And so um, any thoughts what, for, yeah. with well, union I, versus this co-op stuff?
2: I think it's interesting the way unions have developed and, and the, the sense in which they are different from their sort of medieval predecessors uh, called guilds. You know, so the guild was, you know, an organization that tried to manage the reputation of the, the industry in a country. And so it had a lot. It had a lot of different set of incentives than just your average workers' union does now. And I think what's happened is the guild was trying to maintain the reputation of all the producers. And so certainly that that went into you know how you treated your employees and how you compensated them and all that sort of thing. But also mm-hmm. a lot of other things too. Whereas unions, I think, first of all, they've they've certainly gone beyond um, their sort of localist. Uh, Mandate, right? Mm -hmm. So, we still have, you know, oh, I I work for the local, you know, thirteen, right, or whatever, you know, these the the the, the union names. But really, what they've been, they've become, I think, is you know, like you're talking about UAW, the United Auto Workers. Well. United Auto Workers has, you know, they unionize graduate students at universities. Yeah, I mean, like, what yeah. what does that have to do with the, the they auto... Took,
0: they got into economies of scope, apparently. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly, right, yeah. <laughs> just to bring up another economy <clears throat> where they're in multi-products,
2: basically. Sure, and, and so they, they themselves <laughs> have become what they originally Hated, sort of... Yeah. Or, or at least what yeah. they were supposed to, there, check, so. right? yeah. supposed to keep in check, right? They're supposed to keep in check. And so, to me, I think, you know, what's interesting is we do have worker cooperatives that, and again, this is where... Now, instead of, you know, so thinking from the corporate governance perspective, the top management is, has, all, in every case, is subject to the owners of the business, right? But in this case, the employees are the owners. And so you give them a slightly different set of incentives right. for dealing with the management.
1: Right, because unions don't <clears throat> own the means of production, right? I mean, they're just more of a collecting bargaining tool well, versus... They own their
0: means. I mean, that's usually
1: for labor. Yeah. I mean, this, like, this is oh, the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, essentially. Yeah, they're but, trying but to... co-ops actually own... You know, right. That's right. Yeah.
2: The point of the co-op is to own the the, the large infrastructure that all of the businesses that make up that co-op need. Whereas a union is just a collective bargaining person to work on, to, to, to operate on behalf of all of the employees. Mm -hmm. And so you get into like first amendment type issues, which is why public unions have taken a lot of hits lately because they're, they're essentially compelling political speech when they they make they force you to pay dues, because right, mandatory dues paying in the unions, well, most of the money goes to donations for political candidates. And so that's compelled political speech.
1: And they're
0: trying to act as a collection <coughs> for, to gain a basically monopoly power that, so yeah. that they can act as one. the problems come in is some workers are more productive than other workers, so within the group they're not a – Homogeneous group of workers that everybody's identical, and that's one of the problems that comes, especially as you start to get a huge union. It's one thing if you're all, let's say, fairly equally skilled, and uh, maybe uh, arrangements like that can work better than others. The other one I wanted to bring up real quick, uh, and then I'm about time to get out of here, is uh, oil. Since we had the uh, big uh, news here on the oil strikes in Saudi Arabia, so looks like Iran went and dropped a bomb on them, and half the production of Saudi Arabia is down. And so that made me think about the cartels, another cooperative of sorts that is illegal. And I just wanted to bring up like all these collective action things, like where does it, why does a co-op work when people are trying to work together? Unions seem to work for a while, and then maybe they have issues of getting too big or some unfair treatment in some cases. And then you've got oil producers that all act collectively, and that's kind of a a bad thing. We don't allow that to happen in the United States with ATT and t and, you know, they can't all merge into one company, but yet they're just trying to act collectively too. So we have a number of different cooperative arrangements. Um, initial thoughts, why so I bring up oil just for fun, Levi? I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, well,
2: you know, I kind of, I almost kind of think of this as, as sort of the concept of human scale. And I think that goes into the book that Jacob's been bringing up. Just by analogy, so you know, uh, they they always say like, well, if a human could pick up as much weight as an ant could, relatively speaking, like you could pick up your car. And it's like, well, the, the reality is that in in the world, it just doesn't operate that way. Like tiny little things like ants can pick up tons of weight relative to their weight, but bigger things like humans can't. And so, what I think is interesting is that potentially with the cartel thing, there's just a size you get to that you get to the point where it's so much easier for corruption to happen. Now, and I'm not saying that corruption couldn't happen at a, you know, at a small cooperative in a town. Right. It certainly could. But, you know, when we're talking about, you know, three or four oil companies, I'm not sure how many there and are countries
0: for that matter, sure. cheating on the arrangement, which they've exactly. done. Over and the so there's, so
2: there's all kinds of things that play into that too, right? There's political power that your average small town cooperative just doesn't have. And so I think, I think there's just an issue where we just have to say that these marginal changes in the size of an organization once once they get to a certain point, they are more than the sum of their parts. Yeah.
1: Well, but, but also once it gets that big, wouldn't it significantly, uh, I mean, obviously raise the transaction cost of information in between. That's true. Yeah. That. yeah. Good so, point. Yeah. yeah.
0: So and I think the main thing we hang our head on with capitalism in general, where where this is too big or whatever, is just we need to preserve competition. So without competition, we're no longer getting the benefits of why we think capitalism brings some, some good results, the big, the powerful have to remain in check. And so whether it's legal power through the government empowering kissy face, big business whole thing, or whether it's, uh, you know, unions, but (laughs) the union case is very similar to government too. I mean, it's, it's union, union power came with kissy face, big government, big union over the years. Um, and then, Eventually, once we have something that's really not sustainable, when we have competitive forces coming from other directions and the union is so big that, of course, ratcheting down pay isn't something that's favorable. Yeah. Uh, Germany has treated unions a little differently where they sit to the table and there has been pay decreases at the table. I, I mm-hmm. can't remember exactly the institutional structure, but it's, it's a lot different than the United States where the unions kind of say, oh, yeah, you're right. To be competitive, we're going to have to take pay cut and like that's yeah. just part of them really, being at almost, the table
2: almost almost operating more like a guild uh, like a
0: cooperative like a guild you're right yeah, like yeah. Guilds, it's yeah. a little bit more rather than always fighting with each other your side my side it's a little bit more of a collective decision trying to maintain the, the industry
2: instead of instead of trying to you know sort of squeeze everything we can get out today and then the thing falls apart right. tomorrow
0: yep. yeah a little longer side of things right all right well that looks like a good place to wrap so I'd like to thank you all for listening to our podcast uh, this has been brought to you on behalf of the Gordon institute at ottawa university and if you like what you hear uh, please subscribe to us on your local podcast uh, as a regular reoccurring download and that helps boost our ratings and rankings and if you feel so inclined uh, you can drop us a little donation on our website if you'd like but otherwise i hope you join us next time be fruitful and multiply thanks